Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The war in Syria has dragged on for a decade. And while U.S. involvement has been on the minor side compared to Russia, Iran and Turkey, the U.S. has been involved with boots on the ground in some form since 2015. What has the U.S. accomplished from its mission? And perhaps even more importantly, what lessons has the U.S. military learned as it's confronted with future conflicts down the road? Joining the crisis next door to talk to me about this is Jennifer Caffarella, National Security Fellow at the Institute for War and Associate Fellow with the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. Jennifer, thank you for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off by setting the table, as it were. How many U.S. troops are currently in Syria and what is their current mission? There are approximately, according to what the Defense Department has made public, 900 U.S. forces deployed in Syria. That includes a small military base on the border with Jordan, as well as a remaining presence in eastern Syria. Now, we used to have a larger presence, and some of that was withdrawn in 2018 under then-President Trump. But the residual presence that remains is actually still continuing some very, very important work in Syria. While some of the media discussion frames this mission as, quote unquote, securing the oil, uh, which I believe President Trump himself, you know, sort of used as a catchphrase, what U.S. forces are actually doing on the ground uh, is more important um, and more impactful for Syria's future long term. Because what those forces are enabling is a relative level of security and basic governance by our partnered force, which goes by the name of the Syrian Democratic Forces, in roughly a third of Syria. So if you consider the impact that a few hundred American forces in Syria are having on the country overall through our local partner, this has truly been a disproportionate impact. And it is driving some important learning in the U.S. military for how to achieve this kind of impact at low cost moving forward, because what we've done is unique to Syria in some ways, but partnering with local forces is and should be replicable in other theaters. And so what this is driving is a lot of learning and adaptation for how U.S. special forces, uh, which are the type of forces deployed in Syria, can play a greater role uh, in guaranteeing security outcomes, such as preventing ISIS from resurging, but also enabling the broader humanitarian and development operations that are only possible when that kind of security exists. 
When we think of Syria, uh, we think of a patchwork of rivalries, battles taking place across the country, just one massive battlefield. Uh, 900 U.S. troops in the country. What kind of combat missions are they engaging in, and are they mostly in advisory roles for the SDF at this point? U.S. forces are primarily advising the SDF, but they're also conducting some important uh, mediation, for example, between local tribes and primarily Kurdish elements of our Syrian Democratic Forces in order to prevent what could be dangerous ethnic tensions between those Arab tribes and the Kurds. So they're advising, but they're also playing a role in dispelling some tension and some potential suspicion between the population and the partner. And that's essential because that actually prevents some of the instability that bad actors in Syria, such as the Assad regime, the Russians or the Iranians are trying to create. And I raise those actors because the other element of the U.S. mission in Syria that isn't a combat role per se, but does unfortunately sometimes require combat is self-protection. Uh, and we've seen the U.S. military over the years since 2015 engage in a number of force protection strikes uh, when either the Assad regime or its backers have actually threatened the security of the U.S. troops. In one case, very dramatically, uh, in February, I believe, of, of 2018, there was an incident with a Russian private military contractor threatening uh, a position near U.S. forces. And we engaged quite decisively um, to make sure that, that that Russian force was not able uh, to accomplish its military objectives. So there has been some combat. This is a war zone. Uh, but we are primarily enabling that local partner to do what it needs to do to provide that security moving forward. Now, it was interesting. I, I, I'm recalling that event with the uh, Russian contractor in 2018. There were some fears that that was going to result in a big blow up between the U.S. and Russia at the time. Obviously, it didn't. That's always been a worry in Syria with all the different rivals that are intersecting with each other in the country. Jennifer, you recently testified about the war in Syria before the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on the Middle East, North Africa, and Global Counterterrorism, and you came up with a list of suggestions. First off, what would you say has been America's biggest mistake in Syria at this point? So what the U.S. has done on the ground has been very impactful, as I've already described. But the mistake the U.S. has made, in my view, is overselling and overestimating what we can achieve in terms of the broader conflict and on what timeline. And what I mean by that is we've defeated the, the physical caliphate in most of Syria and prevented it from returning. And long term, the U.S. desires, I think rightly, to facilitate a negotiated end to the conflict. That's a good long-term goal, but we actually can't get all the way there from where we are today. The conflict is too entrenched. There are too many actors, including international actors, that have no desire, actually, to stop fighting anytime soon. And while our presence in eastern Syria is making a big difference for the Syrians who live there, it actually isn't affecting the calculus of all the other actors who continue to fight on, primarily in Western Syria, uh, but who potentially have the intent over coming months to challenge what the U.S. has built in the East. So there's the potential for renewed conflict. And I think it's very important for the U.S. not to set our goals too high and then become disillusioned or to fail to deliver either to the American people or to the Syrian people results that actually were not attainable. So what I recommended in my testimony is for the U.S. to set modest goals and to achieve them and to recognize that we actually can't control the entire conflict. 
uh, certainly not at a level of, you know, commitment of resources that most Americans are willing to support. But we can affect it over time if we're patient and if we're careful about how we generate and apply our leverage on this battlefield. What do you propose as far as setting more modest objectives? What can the U.S. realistically try to achieve in Syria? I would start by shoring up our local partner, the SDF, even more. We've accomplished a lot, but that local partner doesn't have the resources or some of the capabilities, including military capabilities, that it needs to make sure that this area of Syria can continue to heal from the trauma of the ISIS takeover and then liberation from ISIS, as well as the requirements to provide basic services. So water, um, electricity, et cetera. There's a very, very minimal level of that happening right now, but there is still a ton of displaced persons and folks who have returned to their homes but are destroyed who lack you know, the basic necessities of life. And the SDF is not going to be able to provide that anytime soon. So I, I think the US needs to do more to shore up that local partner while constraining U.S. adversaries. So I do recommend that the U.S. uphold our current set of sanctions on the Assad regime, which are blocking the regime from gaining access to international funds that Assad and its backers, his backers claim would be used to reconstruct destroyed parts of Syria, but which we know from a decade now of regime behavior would actually just repay the Russians and the Iranians for their military support and line the pockets of the Syrian regime warlords that are responsible for this violence. So I think the U.S. needs to make sure that those actors don't get the cash windfall that they want in order to prevent the kind of military operations that they would likely then wage if they were able to get access to those funds. Those two core elements of a strategy won't end the conflict, but they can reduce the suffering and put the U.S. on a track over the longer term, right, in successive phases to do even more to build for the future. And, and the final thing I've recommended is I think the U.S. needs to reclaim the international diplomatic track, which has become essentially completely discredited because of how manipulated it has been by Russia and Assad. And it is to the point that Syrians are becoming disillusioned with the prospect of negotiations at all. Uh, which is, of course, a very dangerous thing. So I've recommended that the U.S. step in to do more to convene as many Syrians from across as much of Syrian society as possible for the purpose of beginning to foster dialogue with reasonable expectations, as I've mentioned, that we won't get immediately to a negotiated settlement. Uh, but by starting that conversation, we can hopefully put more Syrians on a path to the kind of settlement that will actually end this war in the future. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about what the U.S. can learn from the Syrian war for future conflicts with Jennifer Caffarella, National Security Fellow at the Institute for War. Jennifer, early in the war, it looked like Assad would be toppled, and then Moscow intervened with help from Iran and Hezbollah, and Assad is still in power. Does it even seem realistic at this point to think that Assad could be removed from power in Damascus, or is he there to stay so long as Russia is willing to stay in Syria? It's a great question, and in many ways, it is the core question of the Syrian conflict. Two things are true. The first is the Assad regime is not going to give up power willingly, and that includes the Assad regime is not going to turn on Assad himself. 
that has been demonstrated very clearly. The slogan of the regime is Assad or we burn the country. And I think that's telling. It shows just how far this regime is willing to go to quote unquote stay in power. And it has delivered on that promise uh, to you know the great destruction of most of Syria in the last 10 years. But the other thing that's true is that what power means here, what Assad staying in power actually looks like is much more fragile than the Russians or Assad want us to believe. Because Assad is governing over the ruins of part of Western Syria, not all of Syria, right? And even in those areas that he has recaptured, he is struggling incredibly to assert even a minimum level of military control or to deliver a minimum level of governance. And that's because his forces have still been you know, completely destroyed by this conflict and haven't been rebuilt. And he's dependent on foreign militias uh, provided by Iran, as well as the Russian and Iranian militaries for the limited security that exists. But he, of course, doesn't control any of those forces. So the active question is, how much of, of Syria does Assad himself and forces he can control actually influence? And the answer is, is unclear, but it's certainly less than the, you know, what it looks like on a map. And I think it's really important to recognize that no single actor actually controls much of Syria at all. The exceptions include what the Turks have been able to build and what we've been able to build in the East. But in terms of regime controlled Syria, it's just a patchwork. And I think it's really important that we not take that patchwork and sort of gloss over it and act like this is a regime, you know, that that is capable of providing, you know, even what some, you know, hard nosed realists would want in terms of security against terrorist organizations. It's simply not true. Jennifer Mosco has made a heavy investment in backing Assad and has paid a high price. What can the U.S. learn about the future of war from Russia's experience in Syria? This is a core concern of mine because the Russians are treating the Syrian battlefield as essentially a live fire training exercise, which means they're sending in units for the purpose of giving them combat experience to make them more effective in fighting in other conflicts, such as potentially Ukraine or even, God forbid, other Russian military operations in the future. And in addition to generating a more essentially combat tested force, the Russians are deliberately designing and testing new concepts and weapon systems on the battlefield that could transform the type of warfare the Russian military is able to wage in the future. That can sound like a amorphous concept, but what it includes is actually the Russian military learning how to fight in a coalition with other partnered forces, which is, of course, something the U.S. military has been doing for decades now uh, and has become you know, quite good at navigating, but is not a capability that the Russians had much experience you know, in recent history uh, employing. And so this is going to make Putin more able to assert power abroad by potentially enabling him to leverage, you know, coalition partners or even local partners to pursue Russian interests. And the the cutting edge thing we are now seeing the Russians do that I think provides a real world example of what this looks like is the Russians are recruiting Syrian mercenaries to fight with Russian private military contractors 
that are linked to the Russian Ministry of Defense, but which Russia tries to use in a plausibly deniable fashion. Well, now they're making that force even more, quote unquote, deniable by enlisting Syrians and deploying them to Libya, to Armenia, to Venezuela, and potentially to other conflicts moving forward, which presents a whole host of challenges for the U.S. Uh, to deter this kind of behavior or to put you know, roadblocks in Russia's path to be able uh, to leverage Syrians or other proxy forces in this way. Is this kind of a, a new take on the so-called little green men that we saw drop into Crimea several years ago and start Russia's war against Ukraine? It's more sophisticated in a organizational standpoint, right? Because it's complicated to generate a proxy force and to deploy it with a technically, um, you know, private military contractor force. But I do think it's, I, I think your question is good because I think it's important to note that these Syrian mercenaries are not going to be capable of the kind of super high end military operations or intelligence operations that we often think of uh, in places like Ukraine um, in, in terms of the annexation of Crimea and the little green men you referenced, those are actually you know, Russian military intelligence you know, operatives um, who are of course leagues above what this new cobbled together mercenary force is going to be able to do. But what that mercenary force can enable is Russia to seize or to secure new military bases. For example, there's an air base in Libya um, that the Russians are now operating from and therefore can create, you know, basically these nodes for the Russian military abroad that can then enable the kinds of high end operations um, that, you know, we think of when we think of the Russians interfering in places abroad. But those mercenaries can also affect, you know, the broader local context, right, by augmenting front lines and participating as combat forces. And that's you know, where the Russians might be able directly to start affecting the trajectory of other conflicts like the Libyan civil war. The U.S. seems to be in a race with China to develop high tech weapons such as hypersonic missiles. But is that a detriment to the kinds of conflicts the U.S. will likely find itself in, such as Syria? So I believe that both are necessary. We do need to modernize our military and we need to take very seriously the kinds of high-end weapon systems and other capabilities that adversaries like China as well as Russia are developing. That's serious and it needs to happen. Uh, but we need to make sure that that does not come at the expense of paying attention to what especially the Russian military is learning from the wars today. And I think the U.S. is falling for a little bit of a trap in our desire to get out of you know, what many people call endless wars, which I very much understand in places like Afghanistan. Um, but what we lose in our haste to stop doing this kind of thing is our own lessons learned. And the, the reality that the future conflicts we're likely to face with actors like Russia and potentially even China are much more likely to emerge from current battlefields, right, that don't show any signs of ending, and in fact, are actually expanding, the future conflicts are more likely to come from there than from, you know, some out of left field Russian escalation. Uh, and I think if we continue to overlook Syria, we are likely to be strategically surprised either by the time and place of a future conflict, or by the types of capabilities the Russians bring to the battlefield and potentially others as well, uh, considering that the Iranians are, of course, learning in Syria. And there's always the risk that other bad actors become involved in Syria the longer this war continues on.
Jennifer, do you think Putin will be emboldened by Russia's actions in Syria to make similar moves elsewhere in the world? Absolutely. And I continue to remain highly concerned by the extent to which the U.S. is overlooking what the Russians are doing in the Middle East. And I candidly, I'm not sure where this passiveness comes from. I think it's partly the fatigue that many policymakers and I think, you know, the public experience with the Middle East. Uh, seeming to drag us in constantly. And I get that. Uh, but what the Russians are doing in the Middle East is actually not only about the Middle East. The Russians are gaining leverage there that they intend to use to block NATO or just the United States in whatever Putin is planning next, right? So he's gaining leverage in the Middle East that he will use. And he's continuing to expand that leverage. So we're not just talking about you know military bases in Syria. There's now the air base I referenced in Libya, and the Russians are pursuing another naval base in Sudan. And what Putin has his eyes on is a level of regional military infrastructure, as well as diplomatic, you know, and potentially some economic leverage in the region that gives Russia the kind of influence that it hasn't had since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so we're talking about already today a transformed Russian global posture that is only getting worse in terms of the United States as we're essentially overlooking it. And I am concerned that if we don't act now, the kinds of scenarios we could face in the future are, you know, the kinds that keep military planners up at night that aren't here yet, um, but are potentially on the horizon. Jennifer, do you get the impression the U.S. military understands what Russia is doing in Syria and how it's developing its military for success in the future? And, and is the U.S. military trying to implement change in order to counter that? It depends what element of the U.S. military we're talking about, because, of course, the Defense Department is a huge bureaucracy. Uh, and I think there are some elements of it that are more alive to this threat than others for very you know, good and understandable reasons. We do have forces engaged in Eastern Syria though, and those forces are dealing with the consequences of what the Russians are doing every day, um, where we have the Russians harassing US forces, using electronic warfare systems to disrupt our communications, as well as our aircraft. You have the incident we discussed with Russian contractors attacking you know, a position near US forces and so there, there are elements of the military that are very alive uh, to this and that are you know, communicating to others uh, within the bureaucracy what they're seeing and what it means. Uh, where I think the U.S. is struggling to catch up is actually more at the civilian policy level, which is typical. A policy in Washington often lags behind you know, the reality on the ground in conflict zones, which is why I was excited by the opportunity to testify before Congress, right? Because folks like myself can help bridge some of those conversations. But unfortunately, right now, with the administration's desire to reenter the Iran deal and its, its good prioritization of the China issue, the Middle East more broadly, and especially Russia in the Middle East, is just not at the top of the priority list. I hope that changes. Um, and I do hope, in part, it changes so that our forces on the ground can get more support um, and enable a more sustainable posture so that we don't face you know, a nightmare scenario of our own in terms of the U.S. actually starting to take casualties in eastern Syria, which, thank God, has not happened yet, um, but, you know, is is closer to a reality, I think, than many policymakers assume. 
No doubt America has been tired of dealing with the Middle Eastern wars for the past several decades, but it just does not seem apparent any time in the near future where the U.S. will not be involved in Middle East geopolitics. Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you for having me. We've been joined by Jennifer Caffarella, National Security Fellow at the Institute for War and an Associate Fellow with the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.